Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you might know today's guest from UCB, College Humor, or heck, you might have even seen him at the Philly Improv Theater. Please welcome Luke Field. How's it going, Luke? Hi, George. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Glad to hear it. My pleasure to have you. Now, you're a huge horror fan. I mean... When we started talking on email, you were like, oh, here's a dozen ideas for my episode. I went a little overboard, you know. I went no. through all the lists and was like, okay, what do I got? What do I got? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. And it, I think it very clearly demonstrates the breadth of your interest. And so I'm curious to hear where your love of horror started. Oh, you know, I think that's I started standard 12, 13-year-old at the video store, kind of getting the ones that had the worst covers or the best (laughs) covers, so to speak. You know, I think, like, real big movies for me growing up were Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which ruined some friendships for me, (laughs) showing it to neighbor friends who were like, you're a fucking freak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you're a fucking freak, you know. Evil Dead, another huge one for me. You know, and then, like, going into, like, high school and college, just kind of being that thing where you feel like you found it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Especially growing up in a small town. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs. Um, you know, and you're growing up in a small town where the internet's not really a thing yet. And you're like, oh my God, I discovered this thing that no one else knows. And it's thrilling and it's exciting. And it, I think that really got the hooks in on me, you know? Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of where it started. And then it just has become a true obsession, you know? Go to the Exhumed Film Festival out in Philly every oh, year. Hell yeah. Always rep exhumed. I, I love those guys. I just booked my flight back for this year's exciting return. It was scary. It looked like Mahoning might uh, get bought. And then all of a sudden. I know. I'm so glad that worked out. And, I, and you know, exhumed is doing awesome work there. Their stuff that they program throughout the year, too, is incredible. So I always try to, my buddy and mine who live out here, who are from Philly, we fly them back for that one. So I'm really excited. Yeah. Hell yeah. But yeah, just a full on obsession yeah. <laughs> i got my killer clown shirt on i see it i love it it's it's really great and i think that you're absolutely right in that horror in particular does because it has like kind of that transgressive edge and it's designed to like shock and titillate that it it really does feel like a discovery when you find something new and you're like hey have you heard about this and and yeah. being able to like show that to someone and see the expressions on their face and everything is really it is thrilling yeah, I think also extreme genres. So like, you know, something like horror, which is rather extreme, extreme music, especially attracts extreme fans. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I don't think there's casual horror fans, right. or casual death metal fans. You know what I mean? Like, I'm a fan of both. And it's defined my life, essentially, <laughs> you know, it's all I consume. So like, I think people once they are hooked, they're in, yeah. you know, they get hooked. And and that's just the end of it. And then they have to. In, in my case and a lot of my friends' cases who are huge horror fans, plunge the depths yeah. <laughs> of um, all the kind of depravity that you can find. And the next Conjuring movie, you know, that might not be the thing. You know, you got to go back and see, like, what did H.G. Uh, Lewis make back in the 60s that was yeah. absolutely horrible and disgusting? That's right. His uh, his blood feast will still shock you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of this stuff will. So, like I said, not only were you listing a ton of options, but they really came from across all kinds of genre and era. I'm curious if you have a favorite subgenre that kind of draws you more in than others. Yeah. You know, I think for subgenre, you know, I really love a lot of like monster stuff, a lot of folk stuff, things 
that aren't I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily gravitate towards the slashers things that are more in the fantastical world I'm a ex-Catholic so a lot of sort of devil demon sort of possession things are very en- enchanting to me mm-hmm. also enchanting slash disgusting because I think <laughs> they're often like said to message that Christianity is the ultimate savior right which I wholeheartedly disagree with <laughs> but uh sorry to the Christians out there um They'll survive. you know I think those are like the things that and and then and then specifically in any genre I like seeing some kind of vision like in a unique vision and I think mm-hmm. you know people like Romero or um Toby Hooper Raimi who was when he, when he made Evil Dead that's like something you no one's ever seen before yeah anything that just is not doing it you know, you could see the director on the screen being like, I have this thing that I want to say. I have this thing that I want to show you. Yeah. And I think our today's director, <laughs> in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, maybe not the sort of traditional way, but definitely fits into that category. Absolutely. And that's a great transition. Today's movie, we're talking about House on Haunted Hill from 1959. Now, this is a very exciting chance for me not only to talk about Vincent Price, who I really, really love. But also, as you say, the director of this movie, William Castle. Now, Castle himself was a huge horror fan. He said that he'd seen Dracula on stage at 13 with Bela Lugosi, and he said he knew from that moment on that what he wanted to do was scare the pants off of audiences, and that he went and saw performance after performance of this for two years. And when Bella finally recommended him as an assistant stage manager for this touring company, um, he dropped out of high school to take the job. That was where it all started for him. Yeah, a true showman right from the start. You know, right. like he he really um, was hooked from the get-go. Yeah. And he also worked with Orson Welles, strangely enough. Like, he, he has these bookends to his to his career that are really interesting that maybe we'll get into the latter, latter one. But, yeah, he did work on, like, Lady of Shanghai, which also has a lot of – I think he did, like, second unit directing or something along those lines on that movie. And there's a lot of really – weird disturbing stuff in that especially when they get to the carnival yeah and and he really hit his stride in the 50s in the 50s and 60s i think yeah because he did a lot of stuff before this but once he started getting in really into the horror stuff is when you start to see him really shine yeah he he blossoms there because he worked in theater for several years which helps specifically in his stage construction skills that uh, would definitely come into play in his Mm -hmm. low budget filmmaking but Uh, He also quickly developed the promotional skills that he'd become famous for. And he worked for Columbia for several years in the late 40s into early 50s, but his first independent feature was Macabre in 1958. And he used this sensationalizing ability that he had come up with to develop this great marketing campaign, which is that every audience member would get a $1,000 life insurance policy certificate redeemable by their family in the event that they died of fright during the movie, (laughs) which is just... I mean, talk about setting expectations for an audience. <laughs> for sure, yeah. And and the funny part about a lot of his movies, too, is that, are they scary? No. <laughs> but they're campy and they're very entertaining, yeah. you know. And I think some of them actually genuinely do have these these moments where it shows, like, this guy knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see this guy has been sitting in an audience by himself and seeing how audiences react, right? Yeah. But that sells the movie right from the start. Like, before you even get in, you're like, oh, my God. My life's in danger from seeing this movie, you know? Goddamn. Yeah. And and Macabre isn't 
it's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it is fine. Yeah, it does set uh, sets the expectations maybe a little too high, but also, you know, all kinds of fun stuff. There were n- nurses, in quotes, stationed in the lobbies, hearses parked outside the theaters, all kinds of great stuff. And the fact that this like this feels like it could be the highlight of of someone's career that they managed to pull off this great marketing campaign and it's just the beginning for castle yes i know he right out of the gate he's just like this is what i'm doing he puts he puts a stamp on the film industry at this point where like there's probably gimmicks in the in the you know 3D movies, speaking of Vincent Price, 3D movies in the 50s happened before this in House of Wax, things like that. You know, so there's always been these kind of like gimmick things, but he took it to the next level. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this movie is only his second movie after striking out on his own. And we'll talk about the Emergo technology incorporated into this when it (laughs) shows up. But he'd go on to do all kinds of famous gimmicks, including Percepto in The Tingler, which is a favorite of John Waters, Illusiono in 13 Ghosts, the fright break in Homicidal, and a half dozen more that were all unique and served to create a bit of a cult of personality around Castle himself, even getting a fan club with 250,000 members at its peak, which was Mm -hmm. not something that really happened, especially for B-movie directors. You know, you had your Truffauts and stuff that had a following of these cinephiles in France, but someone who wasn't operating in the world of realism didn't really have this kind of cult of personality before Castle. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting to see his parallel with Hitchcock because they're making films yes. at the same time, and Castle appeared on screen a lot in the promotional materials, even sometimes in the films, addressing the audience directly, which is something that Hitchcock did all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's even said that Psycho is a direct inspiration from some of the sort of low-budget, cheapy kind of Castle movies that made so much money you know like psycho on its face is one of those movies Mm -hmm. but with a master behind the screen you know (laughs) and then castle later goes on to do a play on psycho his own psycho (laughs) homicidal he is this really interesting mirror image of hitchcock because not only was his success in the 50s with b-movie filmmaking a major component of hitchcock's decision to make a low-budget horror movie in the first place as you say but also this aggressive marketing and gimmickry would get used by hitchcock as well in the way that he handled his movies especially when he very much deliberately leveraged the audience into becoming one of the first quote directors as celebrities i think hitchcock was on another uh, level than castle just because his films had a wider penetration they had more money put behind them but there's a distinct parallel between the two of them in the way that they are uh, trying to develop uh, an audience for themselves as much as the movies people say oh you're going to see the new hitchcock you're going to see the new castle movie you Mm -hmm. know it's it's more about who's behind the camera than what's in front of it exactly yeah and i think you know we talked about the sort of the auteurs of that era too that were coming up, especially in France. Uh, a lot of that innovation that was coming out of France too, especially, was almost alienating. Like it was, it was challenging sort of standard. Like I think Hitchcock and Castle are very populist in that mm-hmm. they like have such an innate sense for the audience, and then giving them what they want, but in a surprising mm-hmm. way, as opposed to like. John Luke Godard's like, I know exactly what the audience wants, and I'm going <laughs> to fuck with that, and like I'm going to screw you over, you know? Yeah. In a, in a revolutionary way, not my 
cup of tea, but like, you know, <laughs> it's there. Well, in Hitchcock and Castle in particular, they not only are very populous in the way that they engage with the audience, but they also prime the audience for what they're putting out in a very interesting way. You know, Hitchcock was very involved in putting out press releases about what, what he was doing, saying like, oh, here's what you can kind of expect in the upcoming Hitchcock stuff and sort of developing the tropes of a Hitchcock movie himself, getting those implanted into the audience's mind so that they knew what to expect from his kind of movies. Yeah, very true. Yeah. There's a great, just a Hitch, another Hitchcock side with the, the trailer for the birds or like when his sort of like cut for the, what that trailer was. Mm-hmm. It doesn't show anything in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's him. I, th- I, I, I think it's him in a basically pet store or like with these birds in these cages around him and he's yeah. just talking about like birds and how innocuous <laughs> they seem but together they can be dangerous you know like this kind of stuff but you don't see any clips from the movie so you're just like what the fuck is this guy talking about i gotta see what he's talking about you know yeah absolutely and john goodman's character in the delightful movie matinee is a yes. combination of hitchcock and castle together so there yes you go. yes he he has the castle sort of showmanship in Mant, the man ant, <laughs> half man, half ant. But also like the way he speaks about film too is very you get that sense from it that like he is talking about the magic that happens in the theater. And yeah. I know Don Joe Dante, who directed the film, has like often been like it's a very nostalgic piece in in a way that like uh, looking back at that time period, what it feels like as a kid to be going into a theater to experience a movie for the first time. And Absolutely. I think that's something that hopefully as you're becoming an adult and the less jaded, pessimistic asshole like I am, uh, you get to continue to have. That, that yeah, matinee is a great companion piece to all of these movies. Yeah, I watched that again this morning as well. And I was like, yeah. oh man, this one's so good. <laughs> it's great, yeah. The House on Haunted Hill filmed exteriors at the Ennis House in Los Feliz, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, despite the famous look of that house inspired by Mayan architecture, the sound stages that they built for interiors were late 1800s Victorian, and the poster shows the semicircle-styled architecture of a Romanesque house. So, in much the way that I feel is emblematic of Castle, it was very much whatever looks good, that's what we're going for. Absolutely, yeah. I've been to that house. I live in the neighborhood basically where that is out here in California. Um, and it is very impressive, the exterior, and you get to see it. They don't use, they don't really get, you know, any, but I think he, you know, he's playing on the sort of old dark house stuff from the thirties, the universal stuff where it's like spooky house with weird statues and hidden compartments and cobwebs everywhere <laughs> for no reason. You know, like, um, it's, it's just very interesting to, to have chosen that exterior and, and make that change, you know, it makes it almost a little bit creepier. It's just like, why do you have this weird house that kind of looks like a Egyptian, you know, ancient spaceship yeah. in a lot of ways, and then fill it with your grandmother's candlesticks. <laughs> As I mentioned, this movie stars Vincent Price, who is a true horror icon. When we first started chatting, you also mentioned how much you liked him. He's a big part of why this movie sticks out to you. Absolutely. I mean, he is my favorite actor of all time. No questions about it. And yeah. and there's a large pantheon of famous horror actors like Lugosi, sure. Karloff, uh, Lon Chaney Jr., you know, and then into the 50s with like Cushing and Christopher Lee. Like, I think the breadth of the kind of character that Vincent Price played, mostly villains in his horror movies, but like he did tons of comedies. He did a lot of film noir early on in his career. 
it, it it was less about getting in the makeup and getting turning into the monster and just being like a truly absolute creep. And <laughs> he plays creep so well. And it's part of it deliciously. Oh. <laughs> part of part of it's his look with like the mustache and the hair and everything. He's very kind of tall and and imposing. But his voice is second to none. Like mm-hmm. his voice, just the second you hear it, is it creeps me out. <laughs> it it works so well, you know, and he just had the most incredible run in the 50s and 60s in these horror movies mm-hmm. that you've ever seen, you know. Like Karloff and Lugosi, they're so tied to those characters. Mm-hmm. Even Cushing and Lee, they're very tied to those characters. He did this huge breath of work mm-hmm. and always did it well. Like there's an element of camp to a lot of the stuff that he's in. This movie not without exception that is tied into like the production of it because they're often low budget Mm -hmm. the scripts aren't maybe always there the way that they should be quote unquote should be but he brings like such a seriousness and professionalism and you can tell that he is working you know (laughs) what I mean like he is killing it and he is loving it he's just eating up all the time like I think he's probably one of the most interesting people I've ever seen in a movie you know, and I and for that, I really appreciate him, you know, because he's just he's just so unique. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that he is one of the most mesmerizing figures in film. You know, you watch something like, uh, I, well, even like you said, his whole career, you know, you jump from House of Lax to The Fly to Mask of the Red Death to Last Man on Earth. There's so much variety in his filmography, but through it all, he still has that incredible charm that just exudes off of him. That makes it so that no matter he's played against some truly incredible actors and no matter who he's on screen with, you're watching him the entire time, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. And is a great villain, like such a great villain. If you go like later stuff when he's in doing like Theater of Blood or Witchfinder General, especially, Mm. which is a hideous movie you know it's it's like hideous in its subject content and sort of like the way you know corman did a lot of the he did was very famous for getting into like the corman films with the poe adaptations right but which final genre is like a nasty movie and he can even fit into that as well at the same take doing like a peter laurie basil rathbone like comedy of terrors <laughs> kind of thing yeah he's just he's the best he's the best so and in this movie he's got some truly amazing scenes you know like it becomes a, almost an ensemble and he kind of fades into the background in like the middle of it but the scenes that he has with his wife in this movie are incredible mm, delicious as you said <laughs> delicious <laughs> Certainly so. He, he is incredible. He's a big part of it. And Castle worked with Allied Artists for distribution on this and released the movie in 1959 to good results, incredible results even, making $2.5 million on a budget of 200000 I read an old variety from a few months later when The Tingler was coming out. And the perception of The House on Haunted Hill, as I understood it, was mostly like ribe amusement that, as with The Tingler and Macabre, that it relied heavily on the gimmicks to boost it up, but was a serviceable movie even without the gimmickry. 
And more importantly than its impact on critics is that it had a huge impact on audiences, which is what really matters. This is even uh, Cassandra Peterson's favorite movie, according to her Larry King interview. So there you my, go. My favorite actress. <laughs> She's incredible. She really yeah. is. That's who plays Elvira, for those out there who aren't uh, familiar. And, uh, you know, it's gotten all the way to right here where we're declaring it the best horror movie ever made. So there yes. you go. And I'll stand by it 100%. Yeah, I think I think that there's something in that quote that you mentioned about like the sort of wry amusement where it's like it's hanging on the on the gags. So let's just talk about the gag for a second, sure. because in the theater, if you saw this, if you were lucky enough to see it in the theater, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people saw this in the theater and didn't experience Emerjo, but basically at the end of the film, uh, near the end of the film, a skeleton appears on yep. screen. And there was a gag in the theater. So you're sitting in the theater watching the movie where a skeleton would fly over the heads of the audience from the screen to the back of the theater and basically like come out of the screen or emerge from the screen. Sure. Right? And that would be thrilling. If you're a 10 year old, even, even if that happened, I went to a screening of a, a similar movie because this ha- started happening a lot. Is this movie? It's a short called Monsters Crash the Pajama Party. It's fucking terrible. But <laughs> at some point during the screening, it was an exhumed thing. They have the, the characters come out, like actors come out dressed as the characters and start running around the theater causing all this kinds of chaos. It was a blast. Like, we're sitting through this movie. It's like such a slog. And then all of a sudden, these guys come out dressed as like a mad scientist and an ape. And I'm like, holy shit, I love this. Yeah, it turns it way up. Yeah, and I think that gag works for everyone, you know. Despite that, and I, I think the movie does have a lot of the sort of issues of the, these low-budget 50s and 60s where it's a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. The scare gags in this movie are legitimately great. Mm-hmm. The scene where – there's no spoiler alert for any of this shit because it's No, we're going to walk through the plot in its yeah. entirety. So. Plus, okay, great. also, so, yes, it's 70-whatever yeah, years yeah. old. So. The bit where Nora is in her room and the rope comes through the window. Wow. It's It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And it's so spooky and well done. Like, I did get chills watching it where I was like, oh, yeah, this thing. And, you know, there the moments where they put the scares in, it works. Mm-hmm. As wild and, and as silly the, the movie can get and can't be. Like, they work. They totally yeah. work. And I think that's what another part of its greatness is, is it can walk that line so well. Yeah, I think that that's definitely to Castle's credit in terms of really understanding exactly how to walk that line. I think that Emergo, Emergo, however you pronounce it, is uh, what a just fun idea. Like imagining myself yeah. as a kid, like watching this and a skeleton flying out of the screen. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the dream. You yeah. know, I already love a skeleton in a movie. You know, your houses. Your, your house is on Haunted Hill. But for yeah. it to actually come up and, and be like a, a tactile thing yeah. to interact with, you know, I was reading reports of like they would like throw popcorn boxes yeah. and stuff yeah. at it and everything. Like what a great audience moment. That's something that as fun as and as great as watching things at home can be, that, that audience participation, even if it's just all of you being in the same room and laughing at jokes together, you know, there is uh, uh, something that you just can't quite get at home. And I think that this is the kind of thing that really utilizes that audience connection. Yes. And the for the critics who are like, it's a way to make the movie better, be better than it actually is. It's like, I don't know. I think what it does is it 
enhances the theater experience. Yeah. We're all like collectively agreeing to this social contract to sit in a theater and, you know, what can you do beyond it? It doesn't mean the movie's bad. The movies are often good, but it, it, it extends the, 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 the film experience beyond the screen. And I think that I, I generally think it's like a genius, yeah. you know what That's I mean? movie magic, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now some of these movies after this and were great, but like, but I think this is like this and the Tingler are like the pinnacle of his career and what he was doing in that in yeah. these movies. Absolutely. So let's get into it. I love the way that this movie starts off. Pure audio, <laughs> some screams and laughing and spooky house noises. Mm-hmm. That might be ghosts. They put the record on, you know, the, with the chains. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it really lets your imagination take you on a ride. And this actually helped inspire the creation of those novelty haunting records because it was so effective in a, you know, a dark theater. This is another thing where it's like maybe your sound system isn't so great. Maybe you have some light peeking through, but... When you're just sitting there in pitch black and the and the screen is pitch black as well, and then all of a sudden there's just like screaming and laughing, it's it's easy to see how that could be startling. Yeah, absolutely. I also love when finally the spooky disembodied head appears and floats towards you and warns you about the active ghosts. So this is another yes. fun like breaking through the silver screen kind of thing that I, I really enjoy. Yeah. Oh, and that actor, he's also worth talking about. His name is Elijah Cook Jr. Absolutely incredible character actor. Right. He was in The Killing. You know, he's been in tons of movies through the 50s and 60s. Like, he had a huge career. He almost exceeds Vincent Price in terms of, like, he gets all the juicy lines in yeah. this thing. He's just <laughs> the guy who's like, there's ghosts in this house. Seven ghosts. Seven people. Like, everything he says is just, like, the best line in the yeah. movie. Where everyone else is, like, churning out the plot. He just gets to be this actor. And he, he's a very unique-looking man. And for his disembodied head to start the movie... <laughs> great you'll love to see it it is great and i love that in addition to having some really great lines the character is also designed to be more unhinged like he is a drinker and he is the one who has experience with the house and so for him to really get to chew on the scenery while vincent price gets to you know make the most of his his moments with his wife and everything but pretty much every time that this guy is on screen he's getting to really let it loose and uh and it's really fantastic he uh introduces himself as watson pritchard and he says hey i'm gonna show you the only real haunted house seven people including my brother have already gotten swallowed up by it and he's only spent one night there himself and he was almost dead when they found him and he fades away and we go to the exterior of the house where frederick lauren who's vincent price explains that he and his wife rented the house for a haunted house party. Also a disembodied head, sorry. (laughs) So a second disembodied head shows up, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess we're just going to get a bunch of disembodied heads. No, there's just two. (laughs) This is just how the movie uh, conveys the plot. Uh, (laughs) But he says, if anyone can stay the next 12 hours in the house, they'll get $10,000, which is around $92,000 in today's money. Not too shabby. I'm glad you did that math, because I was wondering that while I was watching the movie, I mean, in a movie that's 74 minutes long, to basically be like, here's what's going to happen in a, dis- in a spooky disembodied head, it's like, yes, this is efficient filmmaking. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Like, fuck it. Who cares? Here's all the characters are going to be. Let's get in this house right now. Yeah. I also think that this is effective in another way in that it treats you like you're part of the story. They talk to you like you're a guest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. It really brings you into the movie, invites you in. And then, oh, here come the others, driven up in hearses, of course, which is another nice little touch. <laughs> yes. 
because he's stealing from himself at this point. Right. You know, he had hearses outside of Macabre, <laughs> and now he's having hearses pull up into his next movie. That's right. Probably the same hearses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he was like, yeah, we we bought them, we didn't rent, so you're going to have yeah. to just use them in every single thing. And it's like the, the trauma car crash scene <laughs> yeah. that they always put in every movie. The first guest is test pilot Lance Schroeder, played by Richard Long. He's implied to be severely in debt by Frederick. Next up is Ruth Bridges, who is a well-known uh, newspaper columnist played by Julie Mitchum, and she is sister to Robert Mitchum, which is a fun connection there. And she says that she's there to write a story about ghosts, but we also hear that she is a gambler deep in debt. Watson Pritchard himself shows up. He claims to be there for the money, but Frederick isn't so sure about that actual motivation. Uh, psychiatrist Dr. David Trent, played by Alan Marshall, is next. He specializes in hysteria and feels that this will help him uh, sort of navigate the waters of this, but the money don't hurt, as he says. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Finally, we have Nora Manning, who is an employee of Frederick's, played by Carolyn Craig, who supports her whole family and needed the money more than most of his staff. And the party is starting now, and you have until midnight to find the house on Haunted Hill, titles, yeah, spooky title music. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. I mean, let's just do it. Let's see, like, here's the pamphlet that you have to read before the movie, and then the movie starts. You know, like, that's basically what it is. And it's done in a very entertaining way. Yeah, exactly. You know, you get it out of the way. You don't drip this storyline out and make us watch it over the course of 20 minutes. You say, you're going to have to just sit here and listen for, like, five minutes. Yeah, and no one remembers. That's the thing. You do do the set, do the work at the top, and then, like, by the end, everyone's like, oh, there's a fucking skeleton, you know, and it works. <laughs> The gang all introduce themselves and reveal that none of them actually know the Lorenz, that Frederick is incredibly wealthy and on his fourth wife, and that spooky stuff is already happening, including a solid steel door slamming shut behind them and the chandelier almost dropping on Nora while Frederick smirks on from the balcony. Yeah, you get immediate vibes from the house. I think that's probably why they use the Victorian theme is just being like, people had a screen knowledge to look at that and be like, this is a spooky house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yeah. You've seen it before, Old Dark House, the innocence, like this Victorian model. And, you know, the Victorians were spooky as fuck. Like, they were All that obsessed with. They were, I know, and they were obsessed with death. They would have, like, these, you know, rich Victorians would have these setups in their house that had skeletons in them and had sort of, like, these death gardens and things mm -hmm. like that. So, like, there's a tradition there that I think is just people would have built in with the history of that sort of era. Yeah, totally. He goes to fetch his wife, Annabelle, and I love the line, you know how ghosts are, they never tidy up. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Things are tense between them, though. Frederick is apparently the extremely jealous type driving away all their friends, and she doesn't even want to be at this party anymore with five strangers so that Frederick can play his little game, whatever that may be. Yeah, it's also implied that she has poisoned him once already. Yes, although she <laughs> denies it glibly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And they are just chewing it up. I mean, they're just great. Like, everything up until this point is kind of like, you know, we're doing it, we're doing it. And then you see the kind of, because there's a, there's, a, there's a big mystery to the whole film, right? And behind the scenes, this is like a behind the scenes thing where you get to see, like, Vincent Price's motivation is something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't know where it's going to go or how it's going to involve him. Yeah. They're not even agreeing on like this party. Like what he meant what he says at the beginning about like, oh, this is my wife's idea to rent out this house and everything. Yeah. And then she's like, This sucks. I want nothing to do yes, with it. Yes. And him being like, Don't worry, honey, it's your party. You <laughs> will be there. It's like 
what the fuck are you talking uh. about, dude? Oh, God. <laughs> They're back with the guests. Watson is telling them about his brother's murder, and his wife took this knife. And he holds mm-hmm. it up. Hilarious. I guess the police were like, hey, you want a souvenir? <laughs> you know, it was the 50s. Yeah. They did yeah. it different. In a box, in the living room, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and she chopped up her sister and the husband, and then she scattered the bodies. But they never found the heads. Very nice touch to the story. Yes. And two heads. And the movie starts with two heads. Whoa. I didn't Whoa. even think about that. <laughs> I like that the hysteria specialist goes, I think it was hysteria. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, no shit, dude. Yeah, confirmation bias, dude. Let's go. Come on. Watson says that the heads whisper to each other at night and they cry. And like you said, he really gets some of these juicy lines where he gets to tell Mm -hmm. like the spooky story at the beginning. A lot of fun. In walks Frederick and Watson advises him to call off the party, but he's ignored as Freddy relays the rules. They get locked in at midnight. There's only one exit, no electricity or phone, and no one around for miles. If you're around when the caretakers come back in the morning, you win. Implied if you're still alive. (laughs) And and another important part of that, too, is that the leftover money, so $50,000 pool, whoever doesn't survive gets to split the rest of that money, too. So there's a chance you can get more money. That's right. So it, it is certainly a tempting offer, to be sure especially for some of them who, uh, as they admit, don't even believe in ghosts. So that'll do it. Watson goes to take them on a tour of the house, and Ruth is promptly marked by the ghosts with blood dripping onto her hand. A good effect. It was a good effect. It's It's really good. good. I like, again, the psychiatrist is like, the house probably leaks, looking at what is clearly a thick red liquid on her hand. Yes, coming from a giant blood stain on the ceiling. They move on to the basement where a vat of acid was used in one of the many murders by a wine guy whose wife was like, hey, your wine sucks. Love a giant vat of acid in the basement. Like, that is... Uh, where else are you going to see that? You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know if there's historical precedent for that kind of thing. Who cares? It doesn't matter. It was a vat of wine. Now it's a vat of acid. It's, it's just delightful. Uh, Nora almost falls in and they're like, hey, watch out, idiot. That's still acid. And yeah. it's like, oh, they, you just left it there? Yeah, and he throws a, throws a rat in there, and it dissolves. And sure it. does. Yeah. Everyone heads back upstairs to have a drink, but Lance pulls Nora aside to question her about the evening. They both say that despite the audible of being locked in, they're going to stay. And Nora doesn't know about ghosts, but Lance explicitly says that he does not believe in them. And, of course, Nora's questioning nature about it, her willingness to think, well, maybe there's something, certainly plays into the way that she impacts the story as it progresses. Yeah. Yeah. She really gets brutalized right at the start. Like, she, like it, it is said designed to drive her nuts. Yeah. And, and it, they do a good job with it. They sure do. While they explore, Lance gets locked in a closet, and Nora gets intimidated by a ghost who rolls out... <laughs> Big quotation marks. <laughs> a little, yeah. It, she looks yeah. like an old lady corpse, and she just, like, rolls back away. Yeah. This is truly terrifying. The when, it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's really good. Amazing makeup. Mm-hmm. And there's a reveal later of that woman as well, like a, a really effective jump scare, mm-hmm. where you get a kind of close-up version. <laughs> Hold on one second. Yeah. Yeah, no hey, hey, Poppy! <laughs> I'm, I'm like dog sitting my friend's dog. Why? Well, my dog here too. And my dog's perfect in their dog's chaos. <laughs> it's Jess Ross's dog, actually. You just, oh, did, wow. She was a, yeah. Yeah, she just did our previous episode. Yeah, yeah. Not 
not the last episode when you listen to this, but the Little Shop of Horrors app, which was very good. So people should there go listen go. to it. Connections. <laughs> she runs back upstairs. Nora does. And she says, help, help. Lance is gone. And there's a ghost. But the door is no longer locked, and Lance is knocked out in the room. They all go back upstairs to try and recover, but Nora and Lance go back downstairs and investigate, finding a hollow bit of the wall, and the ghost shows up again, floating right past Nora. It really is awful looking. <laughs> like, sorry yeah, it's to this lady, but... <laughs> no, it's great. It's really good. It's like a really good uh, makeup effect on her. And mm-hmm. when he does like a continual take, so like she's standing there, bends down... To like knock on the door, and then when she comes back up, the the ghost is there. Like that's something that's used all the time in horror movies these yeah. days. Yeah, uh, a progenitor for sure. Mm-hmm. Lance doesn't believe her, so she storms off and runs into Annabelle, who warns her not to go anywhere alone. That they're all in danger. She leaves Nora and runs into Lance, who she shows to his room and warns him, too, about her husband planning something. And she basically says, this rich asshole thinks he can get away with anything, including getting rid of his previous wives, so look sharp tonight. Yeah, seems suspicious. (laughs) There's a lot of this movie of people walking around the house in and out of rooms, I've noticed. And it's just to kind of, like, get people separated. Like, they immediately separate. Yeah. It's, It's just like... Oh, spooky house with ghosts. Let's immediately separate. You know, like they they don't have the sort of (laughs) meta knowledge that we now have of everyone stay in the same room. Let's stay together. (laughs) It is funny that they uh, immediately are like, all right, we're just all going to chill in our rooms. (laughs) No, we Mm -hmm. won't keep an eye on anybody. But if you leave your room, I guess you're the one. Yeah, you're guilty. (laughs) Annabelle heads back to her own room and Fred arrives to strong arm her into making an appearance again. I love this moment. It's kind of the first time where we really see the charm drop. And what yes. Annabelle has been talking about this entire time. Really great scene. Yeah, he gives gives her a little grab of the hair, kind of, and it's, it's very menacing. Sure is. Uh, midnight draws near, and they all go to gather in the living room again, but Nora opens her bag and finds a gross head! Oh my god! <laughs> in her going, bleh! She goes through a curtain, and I love the lighting in this room behind it. The bars on the windows that Fred mentioned earlier in the movie cast this great shadow on the wall. An amazing trapped feeling. It's just Mm -hmm. great. Yeah, and then the the spooky, like, hand behind your mouth coming to get you Mm -hmm. from someone. We don't know who yet. And he grabs her from behind and says, come with us before he kills you, which is, like, Mm -hmm. the most scary and not good way to calm someone down. For sure. (laughs) Lauren paid that guy probably, like, five He'd be like, do this thing to this, creep this woman out. You know what I mean? It would really help my story. Yeah. And uh, it does creep her out. She screams and she runs downstairs saying she doesn't want to stay there. Turns out the ghost and the grabber were the caretakers when they arrive in the living room as well. A very fun reveal. Sure. The spookiest caretakers. Yeah. Ever. (laughs) Talk about American Gothic. Am I right? Mm Mm-hmm. And that woman's blind. Like, what is she taking care of? You know? (laughs) She's been there for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) They just keep her on. Like, she's grandfathered in. Mm -hmm. But Annabelle has changed into party wear, and she arrives as well. So truly, gang's all here. Seven people, seven ghosts. Shit. Even the the gender ratio is the same as it was. Yes. And it turns out that the caretakers leave a few minutes early, and they trapped them all in the house without the option to leave. Yeah, Nora really wanted to get out. She's like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. (laughs) And then then those guys are like, nope, see you later. (laughs) Yeah. Fred gives everyone a pistol for protection. Classic ghost hunting gear. One of my favorite parts of the movie. (laughs) There's just this table in the living room. And I saw it at that point. I was like, 
oh, there's seven little coffins. Sure. There's just these seven little coffins on this table. I'm like, that's interesting decor. <laughs> and then there's the reveal, like, each coffin has a gun in it, and they everyone just gets a gun. And even Elijah Cook goes, guns? Ghosts? <laughs> They'll do nothing here. Yeah. You know? Everyone knows that the way to kill a ghost is shooting it. <laughs> yes. But maybe the guns are for the people! Oh, shit. Annabelle returns her gun, saying she doesn't need it, while the rest go to inspect the luggage for the head that Nora says that she saw. Unfortunately for her, there's nothing in there, and she freaks out. This is a great, great performance where she is really kind of on the edge. Uh, things have They're gaslighting her. you know. They're, they're mm-hmm. making things appear and disappear so that she looks crazy to everyone else, which is in turn making her more crazed. Really, really just fantastic performance here. I, I love it. Yeah, she gets a lot of the... the um you know, everyone else is pretty, like, stoic throughout. She gets a lot of the sort of hysteria. Yeah. Carolyn Craig. She's great. The doctor suggests to Frederick that he's the one doing this, trying to scare her. As Lance goes looking for Nora, who vanishes from her room, he finds the head, which he shows to Watson, but they're interrupted by Annabelle screaming, and she's hanged herself, or so it would appear, but as Fred will later point out, there's no way for her to get there to do it. It's a murder. (laughs) Nora begs Lance to hide her because someone grabbed her and choked her and put her in another room. And she says it must have been Frederick who tried to kill her. Uh, Lance also suggests to her that Frederick killed Annabelle. And the psychiatrist approaches him to be like, hey, we're on the same page about Frederick obviously killing Annabelle, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, everything's pointing to Frederick at this point. Nora stays upstairs because whoever grabbed her thinks she's dead. And Watson goes to talk with Fred saying, hey, man, I'm the only one who knows that there's some real ghost shit happening. And so also, look, your wife's corpse that you were just looking at is gone now. And Frederick sends him away. But when he looks back, he does look shocked, which is a nice moment. They don't even confirm if it actually is gone. (laughs) Yeah. They meet in the living room to discuss what to do and ultimately land on, like we said, I'm going to sit in my room and shoot anyone who comes in. Some more spooky stuff happens while they're separated, including noises in the hall and another bloody puddle dripping on the reporter. But here's where things really start to pick up because Lance finds a secret door and gets trapped in it as it closes behind him. So he is completely removed. And then this is the rope scene that you were talking about where the rope goes into Nora's room in this incredible ghostly fashion, wraps around her legs as she's paralyzed by fright, and Annabelle's ghost appears outside with the other end of the rope still tied to her neck. What an incredible effect, performance, everything that's happening here is fantastic. Yeah, it's really, really great. And this is, you know, I I always, it made me think of like The Innocents, which came two years ago after right which does a lot of that sort of like spookiness outside the window you know <laughs> so i think people were seeing these movies and taking the little bits and pieces that they liked and wanted to i, I have no basis for reality <laughs> in that but i'm just saying like well, this came first so it sure know. feels that way yeah and then there's just this sort of murderer's row of spooky stuff that happens <laughs> to, to yeah. Nora as she runs away yeah she says now is my time to go for the basement and as she's running for it she is disturbed both by annabelle's ghost again this time just hanging there and a gross rotted hand reaching around the door and scariest of all a piano that plays itself <laughs> always scary always <laughs> scary speaking of house oh you know, yeah exactly there you go lucy didn't eat her <laughs> thank god for small favors Yeah. David, the psychiatrist, says that the noises must mean that the killer is doing his thing and gets Fred and says, hey, we should split up and look for them. When Frederick goes downstairs to do just that, 
David goes back into the other room, and the hugest reveal of all time dun, happens. Dun, dun. <laughs> he and Annabelle are lovers. Annabelle is still alive, and they're working together to commit the perfect crime, driving Nora to shoot Frederick out of fear. What a swerve. A big swerve. Also, big plan. Like, <laughs> there's no guarantee this is going to work. <laughs> you know, she could have ran out the door. The went but right before the the you know so they and they need a lot of things to go right mm-hmm. for this you know also no real explanation for how she was standing outside the window and they did that rope trick which yeah. I don't care I don't need that but like this big reveal and she was had this sort of um, the harness a harness on for doing to do the hanging thing so they're they're setting it up all of the pieces are in play and, yeah. you know yeah I, I agree it is it is funny how many things needed to go right and they're like this is the perfect crime. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I, I I almost wonder if because she is coming down and like with her party wear on, if she's the one who like goes to the caretaker and is like, "Quick, go and leave." I think that Nora yeah. is like trying to get yeah. the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, Frederick paid him five dollars, but she paid him ten. That's right. You know, so she's like, "Come on, <laughs> I know. you know who's the real boss here." That's right. Annabelle tells David to go make sure it goes according to plan in the cellar, and we see the plan does indeed go as intended or so it would appear it's very funny to me how slow he's like hey nora it's me vincent price don't be scared when you turn around and then she turns Mm -hmm. around and shoots (laughs) and just shoots him she's like so she's like this guy's the killer yeah it's worked right in the gut and she flees the scene and david emerges and we are led to believe that he drops the corpse of frederick into the acid pit annabelle heads down to confirm the death but the door closes behind her and his skeleton rises dramatically yeah. from the acid. Yes, uh, and it it is so clearly a fake, like plastic skeleton. It's real. But this is it's a real skeleton. No, really. Yeah, oh, and it's wow. so funny because they drilled the little like hole, hole in the head, head. and yeah. I was like, oh, of course that's you know for the wire. But it turns out that it makes sense in the movie for why there would be like a hole in the head for yeah. wires that they drilled in. Yeah, I I read that it was a real skeleton just because back oh, cool. then. It was just cheaper and easier to go to a medical school and be like, can I buy a skeleton, please? <laughs> yeah, I guess people weren't like plastic molding skeletons a lot back then, you know? Yeah. And it's a great effect. It's like this slow rise out of the acid. They've already established that it doesn't eat bones. Yeah. And when it's walking and moving towards her, it's like, you know, it's like a step away from like a Harry Allison stop motion animation. <laughs> you know, like it looks really creepy yeah you know? it's very fun and it's like dancing around her a bit it has frederick's yeah. voice and it's like hey nice try but you don't get to enjoy it and it backs her into the acid pit too because it turns out that the wire hole isn't just sloppy prop work it's part of frederick's plan as he emerges from the shadows yes. himself puppeteering the skeleton. i did have to laugh when he reaches out and uses his hands to grab this acid soaked skeleton yes <laughs> Well, all the acid had gotten off at no, that of point. Of course. It completely dripped off. <laughs> but he says that he knew the plan all along, and Nora, Watson, and Ruth let Lance out of the secret room. They head down to the cellar where Frederick tells them all that he loaded the guns with blanks, and David and Annabelle both died in the acid, and that he's ready for justice to decide his guilt. Yes. Nice little monologue there at the end for him. For sure, yeah. So he knew the whole time. Mm-hmm. He knew the, all along. It was like a double-double fake-out. Wow. Where, like... He planted these guns there, and everyone had blanks except him, and 
He's like, I know this guy's sleeping with my wife, and he wins. He gets away with it. He even offered her a million dollars to go away. Yeah. Yes, he did. And he, he goes, no, you won it all. And he said, I won it all. Yeah. Yeah. As, as I mean, Queen it's great. once said. <laughs> yeah. I want it all. Exactly. <laughs> That's what that song was about. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it is great that it's actually not, there's no ghosts. You know, it's just like, oh, no, this is just a spooky, like, mystery. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a nice little twist at the end uh, that, that I actually forgot until halfway through the movie where I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember how this <laughs> ends. You know, so it's it's really effective and it's, it's good. And he plays that character beautifully because even throughout the movie, he is acting like he doesn't know what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he doesn't. It's unclear whether he knows his wife was hot or not, you know what I mean? But he's probably in on it, but he's acting like he doesn't know. Yeah. And he's, and from the audience perspective, it's a perfect hide because he's doing the acting so well. Yeah. Yeah. It's really great. And it's such a great vehicle for him uh, to kind of, and, and I think this is the movie House of Wax. And he did some stuff in the 30s, but House of Wax as a starting vehicle, that's really, I think, the thing that kind of turned him on to the horror stuff. And in The Fly, he's not really, like, a bad guy guy or anything. He's the good guy, and he's kind of like a tertiary character. This is the movie that set him on, I think, on the path of being, like, go-to leading man for the horror genre. Yeah. And then once Corman gets gets him, it's just, like, off the races. Yeah. That's right. The Corman stuff is... Incredible. Yeah. Master of the Red Death is by far my favorite, but they're all really, really I like great. the Raven, too. I think that's yeah, fun. the Raven's fun, yeah. and that has Karloff in it, too. Yeah. Like, there's a really great wizard fight. <laughs> is that the wizard fight? In the yeah, game? it sure does. But yeah, I think that, you know, this movie is a product of its time, not in a, not in a bad way. You know, not like, oh, there's a bunch of racists in it or something. Like, <laughs> It's just, this is a f- movie from the 50s. It feels that way. It does have a camp appeal to it. But the combination of Castle's Touch and, and Price being in there. And I also, I on this view, really, really appreciated Elijah Cook in this yeah. movie um, as the sort of kook. It's, it's just so fun. It's like a perfect Halloween movie. Like, this is yeah. a great movie to put on in the background of a Halloween party because it has all the spooky elements. It's in a spooky house. Like it has those sound effects that it goes out <laughs> on as well. Watson, he's the last, the last little say really at the end, even though Frederick uh, gets to get away with it all. Watson mm-hmm. gets to say, wow, now there's nine ghosts and they're coming yes. for me next. And then he looks yeah. right at screen and says, and then they're coming for you. Yes. Yes. Great. And they leave him with a thrill. Classic yeah. castle. Even though no proof of ghosts in the whole movie, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? So he's still just like uh, Looney Tunes. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 just great. It's a great, fun watch. I, I can't recommend it enough. And it's very easy to see because I think it's public domain at this it sure point. sure is. It sure is. And I've never watched the, There's a colorized version that I've never watched before. Yeah, I think the black and white works well with this. You yeah. Know, especially in moments like where the shadow cast on the, wall, the far yes. wall and everything. Yeah. You know, I think that some of the colorizations lose some of the nice touches of that. But For sure. We've now reached the part of the episode, Luke, where you've basically all uh, just done it. But if I'll give you one last chance to say anything else, but this is the part where we sum up why this is not just a great horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. So if you want to hit any closing thoughts, now's the time. Yes. Look, there's two kinds of horror movies in my mind. There's the self-serious, self-important kind of 
almost a 24 movie or even like the conjuring movies where they're just like where this is an important scary movie <laughs> and then there's movies that you're gonna watch and just gonna have a fucking blast yeah. you're just gonna have a great time watching it and it'll stick in your head you'll remember it forever you know this is one of those movies it has so much charm it has truly great performances in it it has humor in it as well which like i I, you look at this there are sort of horror comedies that came before but i think this one really toes the line much better yeah because of the performances and you know it's a very vital integral part of horror history and that's something that i'm really want to stress is like if you're a horror fan and you really want to see and you're a film history and a film historian fan this movie is absolutely essential yeah because it's the intersection of like two great minds of the horror genre with castle and price and they're they're so just getting started and really like sending each other yes. on their journeys in, in such a fantastic way I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that it is fascinating even before you get to the movie itself. You know, William Castle is a fascinating guy learning about the way that this movie had such influence on, on later movies and even the immediate culture that it was released into is absolutely incredible. The Vincent Price of it all is, is incredible as well, but the tertiary performances, the other characters are all also doing incredible. Even if Vincent Price wasn't as iconic as he is and, and full of that just delightful charm, the moments of panic in this and the moments of fear really come through. Yeah, it stands out in an era where a lot of acting in movies like this was Stiff. just got just guys. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> I just recently watched um I Was a Teenage Werewolf, which came out two years before this. And it has Michael Landon in it and he's he does great. Mm. But everyone around him is just like, <laughs> let's look over there. You know <laughs> <laughs> the really poor acting. And like I think this is a cut above the rest. Yeah, and then once we look at the actual movie itself, the script is fantastic. There's twists and turns all over the goddamn place. It's a riot. It's scary. It's funny. It's just got it all, folks. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so that's why this is the best horror movie ever made. Luke, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, dude. Please tell people where they can find you, your socials, uh, if you're doing any shows as things start to come back, all that jazz. Sure, yeah. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love... I love talking talking films. <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is Loop Robot, the number one. On TikTok too is Loop Robot. I just opened an Etsy store where I'm making profane crochet. You can find that on my Instagram. That's linked to my Etsy. And go go visit the Hollywood Food Coalition. It's www.hofoco.org. I work there. They are doing gr- tremendous work to provide hot meals to the unhoused and food insecure population of Hollywood and the surrounding areas for the past 20 plus years. They do amazing work. They always could use help if you live in the California area. We also have pe- people coming in and volunteer. Um, COVID's been an especially difficult time for us because people have to decide whether they're going to buy food or rent now if they've lost their jobs or their lives have been affected by COVID. So I always like to toss them a little plug because I really believe in the organization and what they do. And you don't need to live in Hollywood to, to help them out. Sure. So yeah, I too. strongly endorse that as well. Absolutely. Go check that out. It sounds like a great cause and I'm uh, sure that they're doing great work. 
Uh, as far as my own plugs, you can check me out at Little Horror PHL on Twitter. That's also the Patreon if you want bonus episodes and you want to get it early and you know all the usual stuff that you get on Patreon. We did a fun app about Begotten, which is a really fun, hard to it's it's abrasive. We'll say <laughs> yeah. that's a nice way to talk, yeah. say it. Uh, so that's a really fun app, and uh, we talked about EC Comics, all kinds of stuff. So check that out over there and rate and review if you're enjoying the show because it really does help. That's it. Thanks again, Luke. Thank you so much, George. And uh, stay spooky, folks. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh, bye, everyone. It's the change. <laughs> <laughs>